It's December 20th, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to the end of the third season of The Candid Frame. This past year, we focused on the theme of what it means to live a photographic life. And whether the guests photographed celebrities, automobiles, landscapes, or even themselves, each photographer revealed that there isn't just one path to living such a life. While I hope that these shows have helped inspire you, it's also my wish that these episodes have helped each of you realize that being a photographer is based not on the amount of professional equipment that you own, or even whether someone writes you a check for your work, but rather how you see yourself. Photography at its heart is the art of seeing, and the cameras, lenses, software, and printers are merely the tools we use to express that vision with others. And it's people like today's guest that remind each of us of the power and the joy that can be derived from seeing the world just a little differently. Jay Maisel is a legendary photographer whose work has influenced generations of photographers. His use of light, gesture, and color have produced thousands of unforgettable images and have also helped reveal the unlimited beauty of the urban landscape, particularly his home of New York City. There are many photographers that can boast of careers that have lasted decades, but in my opinion, there are very few that seem to have held on to that childlike enthusiasm and passion that they felt the first time they raised the camera to their eye. Jay is definitely one of them. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Jay Mazel. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate Well, let's see what we get. So uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So um, I know you got started as a painter. You were studying at Cooper's Union, you eventually went to Yale. So, you know, I realized that even before you got interested in photography, you were already interested in the visual art. Yeah. And what was your first inspirations uh, in terms of that? In terms of getting into photography? No, the the visual arts. You know, what what was so interesting in you about painting? Were there specific painters that kind of like you saw and you were really... No, 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 no. No, it wasn't that at all. I I went to a high school, and the reason I went to the high school is because it gave Hebrew. And I had studied Hebrew at a... uh, at a yeshiva for many years. I went for eight years there. And so when I found out that this school would give me credit for Hebrew, I didn't have to screw around with the language, so I went to that school. As a result, I got very, very lucky because at that school was a great art teacher. And I was out of the district, so I never would have been able to go to that school, high school. The high school was Abraham Lincoln High School. The teacher was Leon Friend, and he was the man who changed my life. I mean, he got me interested. It, at that point in my life, I learned two things. Can we be really lewd on this program? I was interested in two things, playing ball and getting laid. I mean, there's nothing else that I cared about. 
and I was not very good at either, but I did the best I could. <laughs> and he introduced me to art, and I studied graphic design, I studied drawing, I studied uh, poster design, I studied all kinds of things that would never have come my way if this marvelous teacher hadn't been there. And I became a member of what they call the Art Squad, and we did things around the building, posters and stuff like that. So for the next three years, I think I started being in this art squad in my second year. For the next three years, my whole life was about art. And I did all my academic stuff to get by, but he introduced me to things like Cassandra and the way of posters and artists like Kathakalowicz and, you know, you can name a million names. And so the whole milieu of art was there, and I would go to galleries on a weekend, and it, it just changed everything for me. And then when I was about um, 17, I took a couple photographs. Believe me, they're no fucking good. They're not any good. But I was very touched by it. And then I didn't touch a camera again until I was about 20. I had gotten married at 20, and I borrowed my brother-in-law's camera, and I was out shooting all the time. It was fun. It was a great deal of pleasure in being able to see what came up and, you know, and develop it, that magic moment and everything. And so I continued. I went on to Yale, and I studied, uh, I studied all the art things at Cooper Union, but I also studied at Yale. And I was so frightened of trying out for Cooper Union because everybody said how tough it was that I applied a day late and had to wait till next year. And in that year, I got a scholarship to study with a man named Joseph Hirsch, who was a great painter. I mean, wonderful, wonderful human being, a wonderful painter. And um, that year, the year of painting was very, very good. And then I went on to Cooper, and then I went on to Yale and studied with Joseph Albert. And by the time I got my degree, I was hooked on photography. I literally decided the day I got my degree, that's it. I'm not going to paint anymore. You talk about about how a photographer is responsible for everything in, in, in the frame. Yeah. Was that sort of a concept that you learned as a result of your study of of painting, or did that come as a, was a result of? I think it was a matter of observation. I would look at pictures and I would say, "There's stuff in this picture that shouldn't be here," and then somebody would say, "Yeah, well, you crap it out." And I say, "Yeah, but I, I really don't want to do it afterwards. I, I think you should do it before." And to the best of my ability, I have tried always to frame things. So that when I'm finished framing on the picture's done. It's not something that was a work in progress that we're going to try and improve it. Interestingly enough, now, because I'm using digital equipment, you know, the D3, and the quality is so amazing, that now I'm starting to think about cropping things, because I can do it without any real loss of quality. You know, I can still find a situation where I can't get near that situation. I can shoot it from further away and crop in and do it. And that's something I've never done. I want, I've been talking about doing it for years, 
and maybe soon I will start doing, because I see situations where there's no way in the world I can get what I want in that frame or get rid of what I don't want in the frame. So I want to do this. And then when I do this, I'm going to do a whole series and we're going to call it Croppings, so that there's no <laughs> doubt about what's going on. Was this, so was this approach born out of the fact that you were shooting primarily slide film and that what you, what you see is what you get? Um, no, because I felt that way about black and white too. I think it was an influence of Brisson, you know, the, the, the pure thing that you think about and probably Robert Frank too. And the people I admired seemed to have this kind of discipline. And, you know, I mean, everybody plays the game their own way. Over the years, as you stay in a business longer, you realize there's no one way to do it. You, know, you, you may like doing it the way you like to do it, but that doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. And I'm doing all these workshops, and the teaching changes as it progresses. It, it, it gets more interesting for me because I have to watch what I'm doing because as I'm teaching, I'm learning. And I can't go out and do something opposite to what I'm telling people to do. So more and more what I'm trying to tell people to do is to go out as empty as possible, you know, and not have any preconception of what they're going to do. And I never used to go out like that years ago. I mean, I went out fairly free, but not to the point where I really didn't know what I was going to do. Somebody said to me, you have no idea what the hell you're doing. And I said, yeah. You think it's easy? It's not easy. But if you go out like that, you are open to things that you'd never be open to before. I have a whole series of pictures I call, these are pictures I never meant to take and had no intention of taking. And there's a, uh, a phrase by Ernst Haas. He said, we don't take pictures. We're taken by pictures. And those are the best kind of pictures, the ones that grab you. I think you're talking about that idea of getting the critic or the editor out of your head while you're out there with the camera shooting. Is that? I wouldn't have put it that way, but that's, that, that's not a bad way to put it. It's not that I want to get the critic out of my head. I want to get the planner out of my head. I want to get the guy who knows exactly what I should do out of my head. Because that means it's limiting. It's very limiting. You go out there knowing what you want to do. If you're lucky, you'll get what you want to do. And the journey is worthless because you're only interested in destination. Yeah. When you were starting out, you know, you had your portfolio and you would go to the ad agencies. And mm -hmm. I know you for the work that's sort of around us. Mm -hmm. um, what was the work that you were touting to the advertising agency? Was it similar to this, or was it more geared well, for all, commercial advertising? First of all, it was black and white, because I, I was only shooting black and white when I started in the business. I developed, I, I exposed one role of color that I'll never forget, because I had never shot color. I'd shot some black and white, but I'd never shot color. and. I went around and it took me a week to expose that role and I would look at the back of the sheet of film that came with the camera and I would say, okay, cloudy, open shade, and it would give me the exposure. And then it would say, you know, and 
It's the only perfectly exposed role I ever <laughs> did in my life. It took a week to do, and it, no light made it just looking at what they told you to do. But except for that one role, I was shooting black and white most of the time. I didn't start shooting color until later on. And it's it just that I looked at the thing and, my God, it's in color, it's not in black and white. And like I would do dance, and dance really has beautiful color, beautiful lighting, beautiful set, and it seemed a shame to do it in black and white. Jazz, on the other hand, I, I did a lot of black and white because it, it was more narrative than it was, uh, you know, pretty thing. Tell me about that shot that you did for the Coltrane album. I never did. I mean, it, it, Miles it, Davis. Miles Davis, yeah. excuse me. Yeah. That was not a shot I did for the album. That was a shot I did on my own. And they called me and asked for pictures of Miles Davis. So that was, there was a bunch of pictures from that shoot. So, well, so you were just going to the club and you were just shooting for I yourself? Was, I would go to jazz clubs and I would go to jazz concerts and I would shoot myself. I had no idea of selling it to anybody. That came later. And I remember that Bob Willoughby, who was a shooter for life in the 40s and 50s, and they said, well, we asked Bob Willoughby to come down to this shoot, but he didn't, wasn't that interested in our thinking. How can somebody not be interested in shooting something? And of course, he'd been doing it a long time. He, he didn't want to waste his time shooting something that didn't have people that were that interesting playing. Mm. But for me, it was all known. <coughs> the, um, you talked about your first discovery of color. When did you find, feel that that was going to be the palette that you would be working with primarily rather than black and white, um, particularly for your, for your personal work. There was a, a particular picture that I did of an American flag with a chartreuse flea, a, a chartreuse tree, a viridian green awning, ivory staircase, and then I got the print back in black and white. That's not what I meant. And from that moment on, I don't know what year that was, but it was, it was in the 60s. I know we're in the 60s. And your sensibility in terms of color, mm -hmm. you know, relationships to color, juxtapositions mm -hmm. of color, that, that thing that we see in so much of your work, um, since you started off doing it in black and white, was it sort of like starting over? Or what was sort of the journey for you to feel like, okay, I may have got the black and white stuff down pretty much, but now I have to start thinking and creating images in color. What was that? I'm not that intellectual. I didn't no. think of it in those terms at all. It just kind of just, works and I it doesn't just, work? like, color, pretty colors. It looks beautiful. I think color can be the statement of a picture. And it has to be very good color. It has to be very germane to the subject and it has to be about color. And I think that, that can be the subject. Black and white, you can't do that. Nobody's that interested in shades of gray. It, it, if you're shooting in black and white, you're much more involved in the content than you are in the form. If you're shooting in color, the color can be, which is the form, can become the content. But you have to be very, very good to do that. Usually, 
you end up shooting in color the same kind of thing that you shoot in black and white, but you, you hope that there's a reference to the color. You hope that the color doesn't just become what happens to be in the camera. And you, you talk about light, gesture, and color, mm -hmm. and how, and I understand completely about the, the light and the color. And having gesture, and, and gesture, and just yeah, you know, gesture. Particularly, I know gesture when I see it. Particularly yeah. when it involves people, and sometimes, and after studying with you, I can understand how sometimes gesture can be, um, you know, a compliment, complementary relationship between color and and light. But when I try to explain it to someone, I'm at a loss to well, try you know, to do I, it. So. Uh, I started looking at definitions and definitions of light, color, and gesture in a dictionary. And light and color, I mean, they're the column and a half. Gesture is like a little bit, and only two definitions that are really about the kind of gesture that we're interested in. And those two definitions didn't even touch on gesture outside of people. And I think gesture. I think that everybody shoots gestures, just nobody knows they're doing it. Everybody is aware that there's something that makes one picture better than another. It's usually the gesture, because if you have, like, for instance, there's a thing I show in my classes, two pictures of Obama with a kid, and in one picture you see Obama's face smiling at the kid, and in the other you see it from the reverse, you can't see Obama, but you see the kid's face wide open, the eyes are wide open and adoring. And so that gesture made the shot. Now whether the guy who was doing it would call it gesture or not, that's another story. But everybody shoots gesture. You can't take a picture without gesture. It's just that we're not aware of the formality of the nomenclature and we're not aware that it exists in everything, not just in people. That, uh, you know, a high chair is different from a low stool, uh, a comfortable bench is different from an uncomfortable kind of uh, plush thing that you fall into. That, you know, it's easy to see the gesture with people because we've learned to look for it in the newspapers in a sports section, you know. The guy just coming over the pole vault, the, the football players that are opposing each other very strong, the guy dunking. But we, we fail to see it in the parts that make up the architecture of our picture. The gesture of a city, the gesture of water, the gesture of snow, the gesture of a tree, the gesture of a building. It's all there. Now, I look through a theosaurus of meaning, and for gesture I found a lot of things. I found characteristic, essence, uh, body language, tell, you know, like you can tell when a guy's holding the wrong card, or the right card. And what I'm trying to teach in a class is to make your picture as specific as possible about the thing that you're photographing, that the person is not just a graphic content in your picture, but he has a life, he has a look, he has a face, he has a build, he has a physique, he's wearing clothes, they cost this much, not that much. And 
the more specific you can get, the more justice you get, the more you are involved in a, a reality rather than a symbol. You know, you can photograph a tree, and you can photograph it so that it's a silhouette against light. Or you can go in and you can photograph the texture in the bark. Or you can shoot up and get a kind of lofty look at things. Or you can look at the, the trunk in the bottom with the insects and flowers. They're all germane to what you're doing, but they all show different aspects of the gesture of a tree. And that goes for everything. Mm. You shoot a lot in New York. You know, you're known for a lot of your work that you've yeah, done in New York. Yeah, yeah. And in, in respect to gesture, gesture is often very fleeting. Mm. And when you're out, out in the street and you see something, are you sort of sensing the potential for something interesting, particularly in respect to gesture when you stop and you raise your camera to your eye? I'm usually reacting to something that's happened. If I'm really good, I'm reacting to something that hasn't happened yet. But I'm not usually that good. Usually I'm a schmuck that says, hey, look, instead of taking a picture, <laughs> you know? But when I'm good, I can sense that something's going to happen. And that goes back to uh, an art director named Bob Cato, who years ago looked at my portfolio and said, you walk too fast. Huh? Mm -hmm. How the hell do you know how fast I walk? He said, because nothing's happening in your pictures. You're just shooting and moving on, shooting and moving on. You're not waiting for anything to develop. And there's a quote from Duarneau, the French photographer, who said, I find the stage and the players will come. Mm -hmm. And so I try to teach also that it's really not a matter of how much ground you cover at all. It's what's important, what you see. And if you're walking too fast, you don't see. So one of my students was a St. Patrick's Day parade. We were shooting together with, just by chance, because I don't go out shooting with people. And uh, when I passed him at the parade, he looked at me and said, it's wonderful, I haven't moved in the last 20 minutes. Everything's come around. I have not, I'm not running around like a chicken without a head the way I usually do. New York is remarkable um, in terms of the light. One of the things I love about it is is the way the light reflects off the buildings and then just the play of light and you get shafts of light. And it's unlike, you know, very many cities that I've had the opportunity to be in and to shoot in. Um, how big of a role has the city and its uniqueness played in your development as a photographer and the way that you see well, it's a great place to practice, because if you fuck up on the first hundred people that pass you, there's a thousand going to pass you in the next ten minutes. If you go to the right place, it's a shooting gallery for people. And I mean, like, they're there. And they're there for the taking. Um, if somebody said, you don't learn by trial and success, you learn by trial and error. So when you're out shooting, if there's only one person on the street and you screw up on them, that's it, you're finished for the day. But in New York, there's so many people. And there's so many. It, New York is a feast for the eyes. I mean, it's, it's just like 
no place I've ever been. And when I go out shooting in New York, I just know it's going to happen. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's going to happen. It's just when. Mm. I don't think, well, if I go out shooting, maybe something will happen. I know things are going to happen. Whether I'll be good enough to get them or not is another story. But I'm going to get to see them, even if I don't shoot them. And seeing them is fun, too. When you would go out for, you know, your commercial shoots... That's a different um, story. Yeah, so how did you translate the sensibility that you had kind of developed, you know, on the street to your sort of commercial work so that you could still make it fun for yourself and interesting for yourself? It's funny you say that because the whole game, as far as I was concerned, the whole game was, yeah, you going? Yeah. Okay, so you. Like a gate, and I'll take him out the other way. Or I'll take him out the other way. Yeah, that'll be it. He's documenting my life. Oh, he's <laughs> So, well, actually, um, yeah, you don't mind climbing stairs, do you? No. Okay. All right. I'm All right. See you. Uh, tell her that you're leaving. Ask her if she can handle the phone. Okay. If she's around. Nice to meet you. Sorry. Same here. It's, now it's funny you said that. Uh, now, I, I don't remember what it was you said that was funny, but I know I was, what, what did you just say? Well, now? I asked you about translating oh, your approach in your commercial work. The way I tried to do the commercial work in my life, first of all, when you're starting, everything is wonderful. Everything is wonderful. And after a while, you realize that a lot of stuff ain't wonderful. And so you have to try or I, I felt I had to do it this way. I had to structure my assignment so that they would be things I would shoot even if I wasn't getting paid. Now you can do that by turning down some work or by changing what somebody tells you to something better or you're stuck doing something you don't want to do. And I never wanted to do what I didn't want to do. It wasn't interesting. And one of the reasons I got out of the business I haven't really done any commercial shooting for maybe 14 years. And the reason was I, that one, one art director put it in a nutshell. He said, I don't want it better. I want the layout. Mm -hmm. And that was really uninteresting to me. So I put something in my uh, paperwork that said, I won't follow any layout you give me. And I had a lot of reasons for that. They weren't ego. It was because, number one, it wasn't fun. Number two, you might have copied that layout from somewhere, and either you, I, or the client could be sued. And so, I don't know where it came from. I'm not going to sign off on something that you gave me as a sketch. You might have swiped it. So that, that helped me ease out of the business. But the idea in my mind was, to try to do a job, and only the jobs that I really would do for nothing. When it became something that was best described as kill it and bill it, it really wasn't that interesting. But I, I always was able to do a commercial job if it had any, any flexibility at all. I could do it in a way that would help the client's need and my need. Mm -hmm. It usually wasn't a problem. It's only when they set you up something that 
you didn't have any room to move, that it was not a good thing. That, that joy that you talk about photography, I saw that in you um, on the last day in Santa Fe. It was after the classes were over, and I was milling around in Santa Fe, and you just happened to be out there just shooting for yourself. Mm -hmm. And you had taken a photograph of someone, a vendor or something, and there was some light that was like being reflected from somewhere, maybe the surface of the grill that was like bouncing up into his face. Mm -hmm. And you came up to me, you didn't say a word. You just showed me the LCD of your camera. And that look in your eye just told me, this man is still in love oh, I'm with what he, what he does. And it was just, yeah. it was wonderful to see. Yeah. I'm enjoying it a lot. I, I think that the essence of what I talk to Clifford about now is if you're not enjoying it, why the hell are you shooting? Why are you shooting if you're not enjoying it? It's a hard thing sometimes to get across. Well, I'm trying to make a great picture. Yeah, I know, but are you having fun doing it? If you're not having fun doing it, why are you doing it? I'm having fun doing it. And it, it still can get torturous, but it's like sometimes it, it's like exercise, you know, doing visual push-ups every day. And exercise can be a pain in the ass. I hate exercising. I hate it. I hate it. So do you, obviously. <laughs> but um, when you exercise, you, you sometimes go through pain to get at something. And when you photograph, it shouldn't start with pain. It should start with joy. If it becomes painful, you have to figure out why it's becoming painful. Is it becoming painful because it's a physical need to do something that's difficult? Or is it becoming painful because it's boring? And if it's the boring one, you've got to rethink it. People only hear, when they have a chance to talk to you, they want to pepper you with all these technical questions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your answer says, like, you don't know all don't. the technical stuff. You just go out that there. That guy that just walked out of here, mm -hmm. Jamie Smith, he knows more than his little finger, technically, than I do in my whole body. I mean, he's very, very good technically. He's also good aesthetically. But I'm no good technically at all. I mean, I think that I just have enough to barely get by with. I don't know why I do certain things. I do them because somebody said, well, you know, it'd be good if you did this. Okay, that's it. I'll do it. But I don't experiment with technical things. I'm more experiment. I want to experiment with what's happening visually. The, you know, the best camera, the best lens. When I was younger, there were guys that spent days testing lenses. I mean, they would literally get up there with a newspaper and photograph that newspaper, see which was the sharpest lens. And so it didn't occur to them that the picture was good, not based on how sharp it is. I mean, past a certain point, but it's good about the content. And if the content is important, it doesn't matter if the picture's unsharp. It, another thing I always say, yes, you are responsible for every square millimeter of frame. Yes, you should know what's in your picture, but you should never give up the gesture for the graphic. You should never lose the content for the form. You think that people get, well, why do you think people get so caught up with the technical instead of the It's visual? their nature. 
It's what attracts them for Nobody gets attracted to being a painter because they're interested in the quality of the brushes. <laughs> Nobody gets interested in being a painter because they really love canvas. They're interested in the visual images. And the brushes and the canvas, it's just a means to it. But for some reason, photography attracts a lot of people who are interested in the bells and the whistles. And the guys who are really good aren't interested in the bells and the whistle only. They're interested in the content that are picked. I heard a story about Dwayne Michaels. I don't know if it's true, but it's a pretty good Dwayne Michaels story. He really works minimally. I don't think he uses digital at all. But somebody showed him a digital picture and I looked through the viewfinder and he said, my God, it looks like a nightclub in there. <laughs> and so, but there are people who are fascinated with the nightclub in there. They love the bells and whistles. They, they, that is why so many of them are more interested in that than the visual. Because it is an end in and of itself. You mentioned earlier about when you teach, you're learning yeah. yourself. What are some of the things that you've learned from your students? Because most people assume they look at you, they look at your body of work, and they go, you know, I'm going in there knowing virtually nothing, and he's learning something from me, so. Sometimes. Well, one of the things I try and explain to the kids is that, and they're not kids, they're older, but I try and explain that there's no right way. And this is very hard to explain to If you're teaching a group of lawyers and engineers and doctors, and you talk about failure being a means of progress, and the guy's shaking his head, no. And I said, what are you shaking? He said, I'm a cardiologist. It's not a means of progress for me. I, I don't want to lose anybody. But you have to let go when you're photographing and realize there ain't one right way to do it. And if you don't do it that way, you're screwed. There's a million ways to do it. And so some students have shown me other ways that I don't normally do. For instance, I had a young lady who got pictures I could never get. Never in a million years. Because she would establish a relationship with the people she wanted to photograph. Now, I don't do that unless I have to. Basically, I'm a hit and run shooter. I'm not, I have plenty of friends. I'm not looking to make friends. I'm looking to make photographs. I am not unfriendly towards the people I photograph, and I'm happy to make friends with them, but that's not my major, major motivation. She established a relationship and was able to take pictures that I could never, ever take, because she had established a certain trust. I'm, I'm all about the surface of what's going on. She is going to create things. I'm not looking to create anything. I'm looking, I'm looking to capture things. The, um, I was talking to Joel Meyerowitz, and he was talking about um, the reproduction of older work using yeah. the inkjet printers. And he mentioned that a lot of the stuff that he had printed, you know, using like cibachromes and, and stuff like that because the processes were no longer available. He was going, you know, using, you know, the latest technology in terms of inkjets and discovering nuances of his work that he never would have seen had he had the old process 
existed. Has that been the same for, for you or no? Um, I'm in a process of discovering that. I, I, I think of it as an intellectual kind of exercise, but I haven't really experienced it because I haven't printed that much old stuff because I haven't been able to scan it. Mm. I mean, I have an enormous amount of stuff to do and it's just daunting. We haven't done much of it. But I have found on two or three occasions where I took a picture and the camera and the film couldn't capture the color that was there. And once we scanned it, we could print it. It's there. Yeah? And there's a whole series of things I did which were underexposed. And I went back and I shot it. I, I was doing a book and it was reflections of ducks. And they were beautiful. It was just amazing. And I shot for about three hours. And at the end of the time when I got the processing back, all my best pictures were two stops under. So I went back to shoot again. The birds weren't right. The ducks weren't right. I went back again. The light wasn't right. Went back 22 times. The 23rd time I shot it over again very carefully. And the best shots were two stops under again. And I realized later, much later, I wasn't able to be aware of it then, that the reason that the, I was always two stops under on the best stuff is that I required that exposure in order to stop the action and get the depth of field and the reflection. Now, I can go back, because I didn't throw out that stuff, it was too beautiful to throw out even the thunder. I can go back and I fully intend to go back and make prints of that. And I think that what Joel was talking about, I will find, mm. as a definite will find. How important is the print to your process now? Do you feel like a, fin a picture isn't finished until you actually have a print in hand? or And how soon after you've actually made some of your photographs, particularly the ones you may feel excited about at the moment you make them, get finally produced on paper? I don't know about other photographers, but I think I have more prints than any other photographer around. And I think I've just not even scratched the surface of the iceberg. I don't think any of us do. I think, I mean, there may be guys who work on projects in the studio and they always make a print from it. But I can go for years and not make prints of something because I'm busy doing mm -hmm. something else or I'm printing other stuff. I'd say that if I get one-tenth of one percent of what I shot into print, it's a lot. So, no, I don't feel that it doesn't exist till it's a print. But I do find a great satisfaction in being able to make print and being able to sell print. But 99% of what people know about my work they know from seeing it on a uh, projected screen or on a uh, TV set type screen like that. And that is my interface with the public. I mean, when you took the clip, mm -hmm. would I show you any prints? No. But you're talking about my pictures. My pictures were on on a wall. Now I was doing digital at that time when we did it. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't still. But I would say, okay, for example, just for example, 
I'm approaching, and we'll probably do it with this year, I'm approaching my thousandth, what I call, digital photo unit. In other words, a thousand cards that I've shot. Mm -hmm. The average card has 500 pictures on it, right? So that's half a million pictures. Have I done a hundred, two hundred prints? Let's say I did a thousand prints. So one thousand over five hundred thousand. That's one in five hundred, if my math is correct. And I've probably not done that much. So my my real kind of visual interchange with the public is based on what's on my computer and seeing that projected. I would love to do all of the print, but you know, if you walk around a place, this place is enormous and it's filled. Mm -hmm. And it prints on the floor and it prints on the wall and it prints in drawers and And so I have to be happy with what I get on the screen. I have to be happy with that. Do I want to print something as soon as I shot it? Yeah. Do I print it myself? No, I told you, I can't do anything technical. I have to have other people do it. One of the things that I, I, that I love um, that you said is if you're taking pictures and you have that moment where you think you've got the shot, keep shooting. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, you have to define a term. If something is happening in front of you, it's over and it's done. But maybe there's something that involves static elements and the reappearance of different people in your shot. So you may be able to work one element in relation to another element and you keep working until you get what you want. Now if you stop right there, you only have a limited amount of pictures where all the elements work. So you have to build on what you've learned about the interrelationship of these elements. And now that you've learned all the thought again with more insight into it than you had when you began. But you can't do this if the thing just passes you. It's like I don't, I don't ever look at a histogram. I, I, first of all, I don't like the idea that somebody's going to tell me this is not right technically. Because one of the problems with experts is that they know what cannot be done. And I'm not interested in what cannot be done because I think you can probably do it anyway. <laughs> but uh, if I do a picture and a histogram would tell me I'm wrong, what does it matter? I'm never going to see that picture again. So, and besides, my whole concept of uh, digital cameras and the reason I love them so much is I can look and see what I got and change it. So that if I'm shooting in an environment and I'm under, I can change it and go over a little bit more. But to be slavishly involved with, you know, clipping at this end and clipping at that end, I don't buy it. Maybe it's because I'm just not smart enough technically to understand how bad it is. But I'm thrilled with what I get technically. I'm really happy. You're never without your camera. Is that true? Try, tr I try not to be without the camera because it's just that much easier to take pictures if you have the camera. <laughs> Do you find that, because if I remember right, you usually walk out with a 50. Is that no still true? No more. I always did. 
but everything changes. Now, when I was walking out with a 50, when you took the cliff, what was the ISO that you were shooting at? Uh, probably somewhere between 200 and 400 most of the time. I was more like 100. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, 50, 1.4. Okay, great. Now I'm shooting at 1,600. It never below 1,600 unless it's such a bright day that I'm too hot to shoot. Wow. But if I'm shooting at 1,600, I don't need a 50. Now, you using cams or Nikon? I use, I use everything. Everything. So. Nikon has a 70 to 300 lens that you got to buy. It's an amazing lens. It changed everything. I'm walking out with 70 to 300 every day. I don't even touch the 50 unless I'm going to some dark, dark nightclub or something. And I'm able to take pictures I can never take before. An environment I can never take them before. And now with this new crazy thing they just came out with, the can the D3S? Nathan D3S, yeah. yeah. 12,800 is good quality. So tell me about an example of one of these shots that all of a sudden you discovered that you could do that you never would have been able to make just a few years ago. Oh, I, I mean, it, it's very subtle, but a woman passes me on the street the other day. I didn't see her until she was almost right on top of me. And I whipped that thing towards her, and I got, I bracket when I shoot. And so I whip off three frames with a 300 millimeter, and she's sharp as a tack in one of them. And in the other, instead of being sharp on her eye, I'm sharp on her hair, so that doesn't really work. Years ago, I'd still be fumbling and she'd be gone. And one of the reasons that I wouldn't have gotten it, because I probably would have had to be at F2 at a 60th of a second. But instead of that, I'm now shooting at F5.6 at a thousandth. So I can freeze things. I can sh have sharpness, no blood. You know, like guys will say, well, you may be able to do that, but I'm shooting at 100 ASA and I have the best quality. I said, yeah, you have the best quality on a blurred picture. You have the best quality on a picture that's not sharp where you want it to be sharp. Your pixels are good. Your pictures suck. And that's <laughs> the thing that people have to worry about, yeah. that they get wrapped up in that technical stuff. I mean, there is a point at which everybody will agree you've got to get to a high ISO or you're not going to get the picture. But a lot of people say, well, I'd really rather shoot at the lowest ISO because the quality is better. The quality may be better, but the quality of your picture won't be better. And I'm more interested in the picture than the picture. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask a photographer to suggest another photographer for our listeners to explore. And I ask each photographer to recommend this one. And they could be someone that they've long admired or someone they've recently discovered. So I'll give you a name of a guy I never heard of. Okay. Chima. Madoz. How do you spell that? C H E M A M A D O Z. And I mentioned him 
only because he's completely different from anything that I would do. And his work is all black and white, it's all set up, and it's funny and witty and really, really ironic. Like the cover of his book is the detail on a violin, but the fret is not a fret, it's a razor blade. Hmm. I mean, it's just, you have to see his stuff. I, I gave away two books of his to somebody, and I taught, I had Dwayne Michael with a speaker here last week, uh, two weeks ago. And I said, do you know the work of Kimo Mandela? He said, do I know? He said, I wrote the foreword to his book. He's one of my favorite photographers. He's a Spanish guy. He lives in Spain. And he's just a very creative mind. Not look for discovering his work. Yeah, you'll learn it. I can't buy a book anymore. It's, uh, it's out of print. Oh. Yeah. But you got enough? Thank you, Jay. Good, good. Thank you for joining me for another season of The Candid Frame. As I mentioned last episode, I, along with Emilio Benuelos, are facilitating Walking in the Company of Strangers, a photographic workshop slash project in San Francisco and Los Angeles at the end of January. For more information, please visit blackbootsinc.com. I hope to see some of you there. And if any of you have any comments or suggestions about this show, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or visit the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also join the growing audience of the podcast by joining The Candid Frame on Flickr, Facebook, and Twitter. Links to each can be found on the blog page. Till next year, this is Ibarriana X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.